welcome along to a Brexit briefing special with me, Marcus Stead, exclusive to Talk Podcasts. These are turbulent times for British politics. Theresa May looks to be coming towards the end of her time as Prime Minister, and we're probably talking weeks rather than months. On Thursday, Britain goes to the polls in European parliamentary elections that were not supposed to happen, and Nigel Farage's new Brexit party is polling nearly twice as many votes as their nearest rival. If the polls are correct, British politics is about to experience a massive earthquake. My guest today has been a Eurosceptic campaigner for nearly 60, yes, you heard right, 60 years. Greg Lance Watkins is a businessman, blogger and campaigner who has spent time in more than 70 countries. In our wide-ranging discussion, we look at the history of Euroscepticism in the UK, the rapidly declining influence of the traditional media, and the rise of the Brexit party, what all this means for the future of British politics, and Greg makes some grim predictions as to where Britain will be in 10 years' time, Brexit or no Brexit. And Greg Lance Watkins joins me now. Greg, you and I have been friends for, what, 13 years, and when I was doing my prep for this interview, I thought, how can I possibly introduce Greg? And I couldn't come up with a good way of doing it, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Take 30 seconds, tell the world who you are. My name is Greg Lance Watkins. Um, that's probably as much as you ought, ought to know about me. Um, but um, I'm considerably older than Marcus, um, basically twice as old. And a bit, um, and a bit more. Oh, give me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was born in Britain. My first recorded intelligent action... Uh, was leaving and going to India uh, when I was 11 months old. Um, and I flew with my mother to uh, what is now Pakistan, to Karachi. Um, I've basically travelled, um, I suppose I've clocked up about 70 countries so far that I've lived and or worked in, or both. I've... I was in the army for a period, um, Sandhurst. I then ran my own businesses in Lon out of London. I set up a company in Italy. Um, I then went to South Africa for 10 years. Um, I then came back to Britain um, because I felt that uh, it was not a bad idea to get one's feet under a table, so to speak. And I set up a second-hand and antiquarian book shop in the bustling metropolis of Chepstow, a mile and a half from the Seven Bridge. That's right. Um, and, and then your Eurosceptic campaigning. Um, I'm guessing you were out of the country when we actually went into the EEC, weren't you? But your Eurosceptic campaigning, when did that really begin? Uh, when I was about 14. Oh, I, I was slightly younger you when my, my Eurosceptic journey began. Um, that would have been 1960. Yep. So we're talking um, around about the period of the uh, the famous Hugh Gateskill speech then. Yeah. Um, my father had been military intelligence, Air Force. Um, I'd always been very aware of um, Britain's strengths and frailties. Um, but also of the importance of self-determination and the right to 
make one's own decisions and function as an independent country. Yes, um, and I'd spoken strongly against um, membership of the European Union or the common market, as it was then called at the beginning of the 60s in things like school debates. Yes, and this was the era of, I mentioned the Hugh Gateskill speech, and for those who are not familiar with what I'm talking about, Hugh Gateskill was a, a Labour Party leader who died when he was still Labour Party leader, and he made what is the greatest Eurosceptic speech ever heard in British politics, and I've actually put a transcript on it of, on one of my websites about this. Um, it was a superb speech, and he saw the future very well indeed, and... Um, I think we should remember as well in this country that Euroscepticism has never been a left or right thing. Some of the great Eurosceptics in this country have been of the left. Uh, Gateskill was well ahead of the pack on this. In the 1975 referendum, we do well to remember that Margaret Thatcher was on the, uh, the inside, the yes side of that referendum. She wore that famous jumper with all the European flags on them. She only became a Eurosceptic from about the late 1980s onwards. But we also want to remember people like Peter Shaw, Michael Foote, Tony Benn. Um, all these people on the left made a significant contribution to Euroscepticism, and in, in many ways they were ahead of the pack. I would agree with you entirely. Um, Margaret Thatcher uh, became a Eurosceptic when she started to learn about the European Union. Hmm. Uh, she had dedicated her career to being a, a, a constituency in a MP and then rising through the ranks of the Tory party, mm. much to Edward Heath's disgust. How dare they have a woman? Mm. Um, and she had learned very little beyond our shores mm. in that period. Uh, but... As she increasingly dealt with the European Union, uh, the more she developed a contempt for it and its fundamental lack of democracy um, and lack of integrity and the um, plethora of overfunded, uh, unelected bureaucrats who ran it and the very little amount of input in democratic terms uh, that the uh, various nation states contributed. And if you think that Brit Britain has a democratic say that can alter things in the European Union, perhaps you'd do well to think of two things. We currently have about 6 to 8% say in what passes for democracy in the European Union. Uh, for the whole of our country, assuming that every M MEP uh, voted for the same detail in the same item, we would possibly scrape together 8% vote. Mm. Now, MEPs are sent from as many parties as the European Union can possibly get from any given country. Hence, we have the ragtail of Lib Dems, uh, Greens, SNP, Plaid, um, Change and, then, and then Europe's own efforts to break up the middle ground of European, uh, British politics, 
by sending Jenkins back here to set up the Social Disaster Party. Yeah, I, I, uh, let, let me let me stop you there because you've touched on something there, and you and I have discussed this privately in the past. But for, for the benefit of our listeners, and particularly to inform the younger generation of what went on, there was when Michael Foote became Labour Party leader. Foote was a Eurosceptic, and we do well to remember that point. Um, the, a lot of the so-called centre and the right of the Labour Party, as was at that time, were disaffected by Foote and in his leadership style and his left, so-called left-wing policies. And there was a breakaway with what was known as the Gang of Four, which was Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams, David Owen and Bill Rogers. And they, they were the Gang of Four that broke away and formed the SDP who formed an alliance with the Liberal Party. And then at the end of the 1980s, the two merged to become the Liberal Democrats. Now, there was a gang of four. And then as time went on, various other Labour MPs joined with them. And I think even one or two Conservatives joined the, the, the SDP in Parliament. But Roy Jenkins, although not the leader, was in many ways the figurehead of the SDP. He was a former um, Home Secretary um, and a former Chancellor, I believe. And he became, uh, that was during the 1960s and 70s, he became uh, an EEC commissioner. And this isn't really in the public domain, but you've said this to me before. He was sent back early with a purpose. And the Gang of Four, uh, let's remember that there were only two of them of any stature, which was David Owen uh, and Shirley Williams. Shirley Williams had been something of a disaster in education for the Labour Party. Mm. And uh, David Owen had been uh, fired by Harold Wilson for his bungling mishandling as Foreign Secretary of Rhodesia, uh, now Zimbabwe. Mm. Uh, so there were no leading lights in that organisation, just leading failures. Mm. And what was Jenkins's um, role then? His role was to set up a party, which he did by uh, standing in, as I recall, Glasgow. That, that, um, yeah, hang on, that came much later. Uh, did, yes, yeah. but that was part of him setting up that party and that core. Mm. Um, he had his eyes on somewhere he could get elected. Mm. And um, he set up a breakaway from the Labour Party, that mm. it attracted people, dissidents from other areas of other parties, um, was considered a very minor detail. And they managed to overwhelm um, the old Grimmond Party of liberals, mm. uh, since they had a particularly weak leader at the time. Mm. Uh, David Steele. Yeah, but well, we remember the, aim... the, the spitting image puppet. Yes, um, with the picture of David Steele in David Owen's pocket. That's right. And um, there was dissent uh, in that the Labour Party was too widely spread uh, for its fairly extreme left-wing views hmm. uh, to cohabit with the right wing of the Labour Party. Hmm. In those days, there used to be political parties with wings. Uh, now, rather like the emblem for Dutch, uh, for Jap Japan Air, hmm. 
um, the wings touch below the bird and above the bird as it flaps its wings. So sometimes uh, the extreme is left wing and sometimes the extreme is right wing, but both of them actually marry up together. Yes, and I think this this history lesson, we don't want to get too much on a tangent, we could talk for hours about this stuff, but I think there are two lessons we can take from the whole STP episode. The first is that when the merger happened between the SDPs, the SDP and the Liberals and to form the Liberal Democrats, it wasn't immediately obvious, but one of the great losses from British politics of that was traditional liberalism in the mould of Joe Grimmond, because the SDP mindset effectively dominated what became the Liberal Democrats. Now, it took a little while for that to become clear, because the first leader, Paddy Ashdown, um, for the first 10 years of the Liberal Democrats was from the, the, the old Liberal Party. But as we went into the Kennedy years, Kennedy, I met Charles Kennedy, he was actually a very nice man to meet, but he was from the SDP wing, um, and then onwards, then into the Nick Clegg generation after Menzies, Campbell and so forth. SDP mentality and ideology is very much the prominent ideology of the Liberal Democrats, and traditional liberalism, okay, there is a Liberal Party, a much smaller Liberal Party, that formed as a, from disaffected Liberals who didn't want to be part of the merger, but as a mainstream political force in Britain, liberalism was effectively swamped, wasn't it? Um, really, the Liberal Party um, disintegrated into a disaffected rump Mm. Uh, run off a kitchen table in Cambridge mm. Mm. Um, and has never been significant since, though it does have a few uh, councillors. Mm. It ha hasn't had MPs for a very long time. Yeah, because, because one of the prominent uh, people who joined the Liberal Breakaway Party around about that time, Mike, Michael, um, Michael Meadowcroft, he's now joined the Lib Dems 20-odd years later. But I remember when I lived yeah. in Liverpool, there was a guy called Steve Radford who was on Liverpool Council for the Liberal Party. They had a mm. certain number of councillors on Liverpool Council and still do. And Steve Radford is certainly a Eurosceptic, incidentally, and they are a Eurosceptic party. Um, but anyway, that's by the by. The second development, I think, is important to remember, is, again, going towards 1988-89, um, Jenkins had lost his seat in 1987, and I, I bet you, you know the answer to this one, don't you, who he lost his seat to? Uh, no, I don't, to be honest. George Galloway. Yeah. Um, Glasgow Hillhead, he lost his yeah. seat to George Galloway. Yeah, that was the Glasgow seat. Yeah. yeah, that was it. And then it was about 88, 89-ish, um, the European Commission President, Jacques Delors, made a speech to the TUC conference where he effectively pledged to um, reinstate the union rights that Margaret Thatcher had spent the best part of a decade rolling back at EU level. And that was really the beginning of the left being seen as more pro-EU, much more pro-EU than they had been at the past, and the right being seen as Eurosceptic. Though I do think we need to be a little bit cautious about this because for somebody like Tony Benn, Tony Benn remained steadfast in his Euroscepticism till the day he died, on the left of the Labour Party, and on the right of the Labour Party, Peter Shaw also remained a solid Eurosceptic. And in the case of Tony Benn, I heard him speak twice, once in 2002 and again in 2007, and I'm so glad I went, because he said, there's a fundamental principle of democracy. And he said, whenever anyone has any power over you, you should ask five questions. What power do you have? How did you obtain that power? 
in whose interest do you use that power, to whom are you accountable, and how can I get rid of you? And if you ask that question of the European Commission and the institutions of the European Union, the answers are entirely negative. And I think Tony Benn, whilst I disagree with him on many issues, I think his fundamental, fundamental commitment to democracy is something to be applauded. Oh, I think his integrity was unimpeachable. Hmm. Um, I didn't agree with much of his politics, hmm. um, but as long as somebody has integrity, I'm not too worried what their politics are because they will act with integrity. Unfortunately, we have very few politicians with integrity these days. Um, most of them seem to be self-serving. Hmm. And um, one of the very big reasons why we have difficulty with the European Union uh, is that our politicians see it as a stage in their promotion chain or somewhere to go when they fail. Hmm. Hmm. And so talk... the, go on. Europe has continued continuously, uh, just as it gave great status to Jenkins, um, it um, gave great status to the unions, it seems to have been functioned from its foundations primarily on bribery. Yes, and what I would also say is, let's use the example of various people who've become EU commissioners from this country. And let's take the example of Neil Kinnock. Now, Neil Kinnock, as a younger man, was a dyed-in-the-wool Eurosceptic. He changed his tune in the policy review that followed Labour's defeat in the 1987 general election, and then I mentioned the law speech to the TUC conference. And then Kinnock lost the 92 election, much to the surprise of many. And within a year or so, he was a European commissioner. Now, the strange thing there, of course, is that he was rejected twice by the British people. And yet he was given one of the most influential roles in, in politics, an EU commissioner, elected by nobody. And similarly, round about the same time, uh, Chris Patton, when he ceased to be governor of Hong Kong... Go back before that, mm. when he was dumped by his constituency because he was hopeless. In Bath. Was given the, in Bath, he was given the job in Hong Kong, as that, handing over Hong Kong to China. That's right. So then Kinnock and Patton were EU commissioners at the same time. Fast forward a few years... Peter Mandelson becomes a European commissioner. This is a man who had to resign from the cabinet twice. There was the Hinduja passport affair, the Jeffrey Robinson home for loan scandal. He never did explain how his Brazilian boyfriend Ronaldo obtained a British passport without going through the usual channels. And yet this man ended up an EU commissioner. Something's, something stinks about this, doesn't it? I can't think of much that doesn't stink about the European Union, and hence I've campaigned against membership long before we were in it mm. and have unremittingly taken op opportunities to oppose it. Mm. And you, to revert back to Kinnock for a moment, I personally can only see him as a political prostitute mm. in that he changed sides for his own expediency. Hmm. And standing on that particular street corner, he has made a fortune. Hmm. Hmm. And here's something else that concerns me, 
is that long after Chris Patton ceased to be an EU commissioner, he became chairman of the BBC Trust. Um, but he was receiving an EU pension, which meant that one of the conditions of that pension was he did not criticise or go against in any way the um, the actions of the European Union. Now, to me, that should mean that he's either invalid to become chairman of the BBC Trust or he should sacrifice his pension before taking on the role. There is a clear conflict of interest there. There's an even greater conflict of interest uh, when you look at the House of Lords, the number of members of the House of Lords who draw direct income from uh, the European Union and do not have to declare it. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that because Norman Tebbit, about a year ago, stood up in the House of Lords to interject something Neil Kinnock said. And he said to Neil Kinnock, I am a privy councillor and you are a privy councillor. You are also in receipt of an EU pension that says that you cannot criticise the actions of the European Union. If there is a conflict between your duties as a Privy Councillor and your role as an ex-EU Commissioner on an EU pension, which side are you on? Because that is a conflict of interest as well. And Neil Kinnock couldn't answer the question. Um, only because he didn't want to lie and he didn't dare upset the European Union. Hmm. But that is a conflict um, and, of interest as well, isn't it? Privy Council. Oh, it's, it's an obscene conflict of in, interest that mm. no one with integrity would dream of having. Mm. Um, it has become, ever since we did away with the hereditary peers in such a haphazard manner, mm. um, it is more aptly named nowadays the House of Fraud. Mm. Frauds, not lords. Mm. Uh, because so many of them are there in self-interest. Hmm. Uh, we've lost the House of Lords as the great uh, moderator and the great review chamber uh, because there aren't the intellects in it anymore. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna, this is going to take us full circle to where I want to go with this discussion. So we've spent 20 minutes or so now setting the scene, and I want to take things forward to exactly where we are at this moment in time. And we're seeing, I'll be honest, I'm 35 and I have never known Britain as ill at ease with itself as it is at the moment. But I think this has been bubbling under the surface for many, many years. And we are living in extraordinary times, no doubt about that. Um, and we've had the situation now where Theresa May talks have broken down with Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, and there's very, very strong rumours that she's being forced to announce her departure date in a not-too-distant future. Yet well, she's... Marcus, may I interject there? I hear this evening that she's actually been taken hostage and she's being held in Downing Street. Mm. Um, and she's refusing to come out until everybody signs an agreement next week in the House of Commons that says they'll do what she wants. She's been taken hostage by herself. Yeah, well, she's going to... This is what we're hearing on, on news reports, that she's going to have a fourth go at getting her agreement through House of Commons. Now, there's two problems there. One is the, the, the rule John Burko made, that you can't bring a bill forward in the same form if it's already been rejected. So amendments were made last time, so I'm guessing some kind of amendments are going to have to be made this time. And bearing in mind these talks with the Labour Party have not gone well, what on earth is the point? Desperation. Hmm. 
there is no other point. What, but what no one seems to realise um, or be admitting from uh, the politician's side of the fence is that we are scheduled to leave the European Union, hmm. conclude the pleasant, present round of problems on the 31st of October. Hmm. At which stage, if we do not have an agreement, hmm. whatever Parliament is saying we will be leaving what Parliament and the scoundrels from Remain have claimed is a no-deal. Hmm. When, in fact, a no-deal is the incredibly complex deal by which the vast majority of countries trade with the European Union. On top of which, we understand that 102 additional micro-deals have been tagged on to that huge deal, which the Remain and many of the Labour Party wish to claim is a no-deal. For a no-deal, it does seem to have an awful lot of agreements in it. Yes, and as Christopher Booker wrote in his tele Sunday Telegraph column some months ago, what no deal really means is lots of little side deals being hastily arranged to keep various aspects of life in this country going. Um, some of it is fundamental. Some of it, for example, may not be life or death situations, but it would cause a significant amount of inconvenience. For example, the agreement that sees Formula One cars come and go from their bases in and around, because a number of the teams are based in and around the Silverstone area. Um, they, they leave this country, what, 18, 19 times a year. The agreement that lets those parts of those cars come and go with ease would have to be done as a side deal. Similar thing with horse races, uh, horse racing and, you know, thoroughbred horses. So there would be not, I mean, they're, they're just two prominent examples linked to sport, but there are numerous little side de deals that would have to be done to keep life in this country functioning. That's what no deal really means, isn't it? Uh, indeed it is. Uh, but let us not forget, the entire world has worked on what they now deem no deal hmm. since time immemorial. Hmm. Lots of small deals. Hmm. As soon as you've got a big deal, like the European Union, mm. it starts to function to people's disadvantage. Mm. And you only have to ask the Greeks, the Spaniards, the Portuguese, the Italians, just how disadvantageous being members of the European Union has become. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I gave George Galloway a little plug a minute ago in relation to 1987. And George is someone I do have a lot of respect for. In fact, we've just passed the 15th anniversary of his um, his speech to the U.S. Senate and the way he answered questions for them, which for those of you who perhaps don't remember it or were very young 15 years ago, go on YouTube and watch it because it, it is phenomenal to watch. Um, and the thing about George Galloway is that up until a few years ago, he was pro-EU. But now he's very much a Eurosceptic and he has made some... He is a great orator, George Galloway. For a man who has not that much formal education, he can speak without notes and he can speak eloquently and he's a very good speechmaker. And he became uh, anti-EU and he's a fine Eurosceptic now. And for him, the final straw was what happened in Greece, where the EU effectively overthrew a democratically elected government. 
Uh, that and was the final put in their own dictator. Mm. That's right. Uh, and if you enjoy the George Galloway, can I also recommend that you uh, seek out the um, Christopher Hitchens mm. um, cross-examination by the Senate. Mm. Uh, yeah. Another yeah. brilliant, absolutely brilliant uh, evisceration of the intellectual ineptitude of the American Senate. And if you like that, you can go and look up debates on YouTube of Galloway and Christopher Hitchens debating with each other. Uh, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that was George Galloway's conversion to Euroscepticism. But on the same subject, I'm quarter Italian, as you know. And what I find interesting is across the European Union, Eurosceptic movements, whether it's the Five Star Movement in Italy or what's going on in Greece and what have you, are fueled by the energy and enthusiasm of the young. Yet here in the UK, um, young, ed university-educated young people are overwhelmingly pro-EU. Um, and I, it was, I was at university between 2002 and 2005, and it was an issue then, but I can only think of one example of where it became unpleasant in the whole three years I was there. I think Eurosceptics on university campuses today are having it much more much more difficult than I had it um, in, in terms of uh, unpleasantness. But at the same time, when I compare what's going on in Italy and Greece to what's going on here, I think it's fair to say, what on earth is going on in our universities? I think basically what's going on in our universities is universities are being increasingly populated uh, by a lower grade of educationalists um, who are more teachers of their subjects, uh, who have introduced a very heavy level of propaganda uh, in favour of Europe, because here are more opportunities for them to get jobs mm. at the expense of their students. Mm. And on top of that, students are beginning to realise that university is for so many of them taking earth-shattering and important degrees in uh, knitting and uh, sociology and uh, media studies uh, that are beginning to realize that this is no route to a job. This will not place them anywhere. It is merely a device used by politicians uh, to maintain a lower level of unemployment amongst the young so that we don't end up looking like Spain and Italy and the rest of Europe. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. I've I made that point numerous times on social yeah. media and in articles, as you know. Uh, now, this leads, mm -hmm. this leads to those very students being, instead of being educated and learning from each other and learning from debate and learning uh, from challenging debate being the snowflake generation who are no platforming people. Hmm. Um, this is their own ineptitude at actually pointing out to the people in debate how and why they disagree with them hmm. because they are not of the caliber that is, make university students. Hmm. They have politicized the universities hmm. and the output from the universities 
most of them are unlikely to get jobs. Yes, that's right. But I, I think back, and you know this story about how in 2002 I, tr- I tried to get the Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens, brother of Christopher Hitchens, to come up to the University of Liverpool um, to debate the issue. Uh, uh, he's actually changed his mind on this subject. Um, he was of the view that if you are um, a homosexual and openly gay, you cannot call yourself a conservative. And he wrote a piece in the Mail on Sunday in 2002 when Alan Duncan, now Sir Alan Duncan, came out. Um, I know Peter now regrets ever getting involved in that debate because it was, he says it's an irrelevant sh- sideshow, really, to what's actually going on in Britain. Um, but I, had to, I went through a process of about nine months where I went through various committees and councils and so forth at the university, and the end result was he was no platformed. And that gave me cause for concern as far back as 2003 when that process came to an end. And yet I found out then, I think it was three years later, that um, UKIP members had been no-platformed. And yet here we are now, another 12, 13 years after that, we're now in a situation where George Galloway, a man of the left no longer bothers attending university debates because it's just not worth it in terms of no platforming and you can't say this and you mustn't say that. I thought university, when I went to university in my 18-year-old naivety, was all about expanding the mind and exposing yourself to new ideas and being challenged and debating. And what I found is, okay, I was shocked in that example of 2002-2003 with Peter Hitchens, but it does seem as though, though the scope of things you can say is getting narrower and narrower. And Brendan O'Neill has said in Spiked Online and when he's spoken on TV and radio of examples he's seen of being outside in corridors um, after debates when controversial things have been said of students in tears hugging each other, not because they've had what you and I would consider a traumatic experience, but because they've heard opinions they don't agree with. And they're going to find life very difficult indeed if they are struggling to handle that. Oh, I agree with you, and it's becoming a complete nonsense. We're now um, being made to feel guilty for testing the learning skills to date of 10-year-olds. Hmm. Um, when are they going to start teaching them that life is competitive? Hmm. And you're going to find that the 10-year-olds of today are going to have the most incredibly competitive life, even compared with yours, Hmm. uh, when you think that there is very, very little possibility of social services being able to maintain their standards to keep them in the manner to which they wish they were accustomed. in as little as 20 years already the system is bankrupt oh that's and it's not just bankrupt here Mm. it's bankrupt worldwide yes because right my mother's generation she was at university in the late 60s and early 70s things graduates could reasonably expect in those days when they left they could expect to fall into a pretty well-paid job quite quickly They could expect to get a mortgage on a nice house in a decent area, which was affordable within their means. They could expect a private pension, reasonably stable. 
and they could expect to retire when they're in their late 50s, as my mother did, or certainly no later than your mid-60s. Now, uh, and also to leave university debt-free. Now, that's five assumptions I've just listed there. None of today's university leavers have got any of those things. No. And it is not going to get better. Hmm. And it isn't helped by the fact that we've opened university doors, as I said to uh, people taking um, sociology and um, media studies and frippery as opposed to academic study. Hmm. And let me take one example um, of no platforming. Uh, they wish to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes. Hmm. What about the thousands and thousands literally, mm. of students of every hue and colour and creed who have gone to university on a Rhodes scholarship. Correct. And what about also, you've got some people generally of the same ilk as those who want the Rhodes statue removed, wanting Nelson's column removed. Now, I'm not saying that either of those individuals... Uh, Rhodes or Nelson were perfect and they were but they were products of their time and you must always look at these things through the prism not of the standards we have today but what they were at the time well it's it's like the farce of um, apologia for slavery mm. are the are the North Africans going to issue an apology and compensation to Britain for taking Britain's slaves and selling them on the Barbary coast. But how many young Britons know that that ever happened? Uh, oh no, that's not expedient to teach them that. Mm. Um, and for instance, you will have seen uh, Morris dancers, mm. uh, a great British tradition. Mm. Well, shouldn't it be banned? It's racist. Because it's not Morris dancers at all. It's not British at all. It's derived from Moorish dancers. Mm. And the reason there is somebody blacked up amongst them mm. is because the Barbary traders used to trade along the south coast as far as about Southampton, the, both sides of the Severn Estuary, a little bit in West Wales and a tiny bit in Southern Ireland. Mm. And when their ships left, the night they were leaving the port where they'd been trading, they would hold a party. Mm. That party would um, be well plied with alcohol. Mm. And when the party goers woke up in the morning, they would find the Barbary uh, traders had gone hmm. but so also for each of the ships had 20 or 30 of the young men and women of their community yeah who were then taken as cargo hmm. to north africa and sold in the slave markets but these are inconvenient truths aren't they oh yes hmm. um it's also a bit of an inconvenient truth that it's about time the italians paid uh reparation uh, for the number of British who were shipped to Italy as slaves by the Romans. Hmm. 
Well, you, you Where could, do we draw these lines? Yeah, you could go on forever talking about the, exactly. the, the wrongs of long ago. Um, and to, 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 to judge even by the standards of 50 years ago, whether it's the example of Enoch Powell or whatever, um, even going back 50 years, we can't judge it by the standards and the language of today. And particularly going back hundreds of years, you know, going back to the days of Rhodes and Nelson and the, go back as far as you like, the Romans, you cannot judge it by the, the standards of today. It's just not right. Um, but anyway. But, but there is a large sector of society who, on the one hand, want to blame the past. Uh, and on the other hand, are stuck in the past. Hmm. You only have to look at Wales. But let's not go there. Yeah, that 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 would be a podcast in its own right, and we may well do that at some point because that that we could talk for ages about that. But okay, so going back to where we were a few moments ago, then Theresa May's agreement, whatever she puts before Parliament in the next few days, if indeed she bothers at all, it likely to fail. But then this Thursday, then we've got the European elections, and the Brexit Party has appeared from nowhere and is likely to do very well indeed. The latest YouGov poll has the Brexit Party with twice as many votes as Labour and the Lib Dems and three times as many as the Conservatives. And it appears to be the case of the political establishment and their friends in the mainstream media versus the people. And when I say the mainstream media, look at the Andrew Marshall um, the, the, uh, this morning. I'm recording this on the Sunday evening. He had five guests, all of whom are against Brexit. Uh, the only person who appeared on the programme this morning who is in favour of Brexit was a newspaper reviewer who wasn't really interviewed anyway, just reviewed the papers. So I think the Britain we're living in right now is that whether you're an old school socialist living in the Labour heartlands of Northern England and the South Wales Valleys, or if you're a conservative minded person living in Middle England, the chances are that you're furious that the Brexit you voted for in June 2016 has not been delivered and may never be delivered by a parliament that is doing everything it can to delay, frustrate, water down and preferably block Brexit. And as you know, and as listeners to the Brexit Briefing podcast know, I have my reservations about Nigel Farage in many ways, and he's made plenty of enemies, even within the Eurosceptic movement. And the story of the last 20 years has been one of constant infighting inside UKIP. And every five years, a new batch of UKIP MEPs has been elected to the European Parliament. But it's never taken very long before that group splits and falls into factions because people start falling out with Mr Farage because of his leadership style. And he also failed to develop UKIP into a serious political party. It never did break through in a major way at Westminster. And lots of opportunities were missed over many years, to my frustration, and I know to your frustration as well, even though you were never a member. But that said, as an orator and as a media performer, he is superb on TV and radio and in public speaking. And his personality has been the, at the forefront of this campaign, but look at the broad coalition he's built and on the radical left, again, another mention for George Galloway. George has said he's going to back the Brexit party for this election and for this election only. Um, and he's a brilliant speaker in his own right. And then on the socially conservative right, you have Anne Widdicombe, who's actually standing as a Brexit party candidate in this election. Um, she's unashamedly socially conservative and is a following among Middle England. And, of course, George Galloway and Anne Widdicombe have become reality TV media stars since leaving Parliament. But they do have popular followings 
among vast swathes of the country. And earlier, just a matter of days ago, um, there was a Brexit party party election broadcast and it was very cleverly done. It featured Farage and Widdicombe, but it also featured a lot of ordinary people from black, white and Asian backgrounds, all of whom are unhappy that the Brexit they voted for has not been delivered. And I really don't think, you know, Greg, that people inside the Westminster bubble and those who work for the mainstream media in those same circles, um, the London dinner party set, if you like, I don't think they have any real idea of just how angry people are in the wider country. And Britain is a country no longer at ease with itself. I think um, one thing I would disagree with you on is mainstream media. Mm. I would say legacy media, they'll be gone in five years. Mm. Um, the press are dwindling at an alarming rate. Mm. Um, they must be alarmed. I'm not particularly because it's giving rise to uh, a media um, through social media, through podcasts like this. Mm. The only drawback to that, of course, is increasingly people will only listen to views they agree with. And you end up with confirmation bias. Yes. Mm. And uh, meanwhile, we have the the first great example of confirmation bias, which is the cranorectally retentive Westminster bubble, mm. who haven't got a clue what's going on in the country. Mm. Mm. That's right. And even more frightening, although they're negotiating with the European Union, supposedly haven't got a clue how the European Union works. Well, this goes back to something I said just after the uh, the Leave side won. And I, I mentioned at the time, I wrote somewhere, that what would I do under these circumstances if I was leading a Conservative government at this point? And I said I would do a few things. The first thing I would do is I would build bridges with the Labour side and get somebody like Gisela Stewart in my inner circle of people I'm confiding in because this goes beyond party politics, this process of getting us out of the European Union, and you need cooperation from both sides of the House, particularly the more sensible elements on the Labour benches to do that. Now, Gisela has since stood down from Parliament at the 2017 election, but she was impressive in the 2016 uh, referendum campaign. She debated very well. The second thing I would have done is I would have got Christopher Booker on my side, and I would have had him not necessarily in a formal role but I would have been in regular contact with him because Christopher who I know has been a friend of yours for many many years has an understanding better than most of how the institutions work and he would have been a good person to speak to on a regular basis to see how to proceed. Christopher Booker and Richard North mm. should have been co-opted into if, you know, um, there's an American phrase, if I had my druthers, I'd rather it was done this way. Um, as leader, I would have immediately announced a coalition uh, conference uh, to draw up a coalition committee to deal with leaving the European Union. Mm. Mm. I would have co-opted um, as first individuals, Christopher Booker and Richard North, mm. both of whom have 
encyclopedic understanding of the European Union. Hmm. Uh, that said, I would have sent every member of that committee home with a copy of Richard Corbett's book on the European Union, because he tells you how wonderful it is and how it was built. Hmm. And if you know how a car was built, you will also know how to unbuild it. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would have done immediately is make it very clear that I was aware that Britain functioned on uh, Saxon, Anglo-Saxon law, um, where you can do absolutely anything hmm. as a member of the society. I can legally hit you on the head with a hammer, except that there is a law that says I can't. Yeah. Whereas the whole of Europe functions on Roman law. Mm. And under Roman law, with a fairly heavy code, um, overlay of Code Napoleon, you are not allowed to do anything unless the law permits it. Mm. Now, that is a completely different approach to law. You're right, and this takes this, me back to... This means we haven't been able to negotiate because Europe doesn't know what a negotiation is. It hasn't a clue. For the simple reason that our law is based on intent when you interpret it. Hmm. Roman law, there is no element of intent it is by the letter of the law therefore any part of that negotiation that didn't directly agree with roman law i.e european law could not be permitted therefore no negotiation was possible this takes because me... it was yeah. set up as law hmm. to make europe and force it together there is no area in it except Article 50 mm. that considers the possibility of dismantling any part of it. Therefore, how can you negotiate? This takes me back to the autumn of the year 2000 when I um, began studying A-level law. And the course began in September of 2000. And then in, in the October of 2000, something very important happened when the Human Rights Act was brought into the, the British legal system. And at the time, I think, it, again, going back, it was a Peter Hitchens column. He said, a uh, hundred years from now, when Chinese historians are writing about the decline of Britain, October 2000 will be a key date, because for the reasons you have just articulated very well, that changed centuries of law in this country, the way we interpret law. And it took a little while, and I remember having debates with my tutors about this at the time. It took a little while to, for it to become obvious, but we've seen many, many signs of it in the years since, particularly when it comes to the extradition of people to other countries. Um, the initial manual of European law hmm. was written by Mireille Marty. Hmm. And it was done at the end of a conference, and it was called Corpus Juris. Hmm the body of law hmm. and in that manual it stated 
in the English version, across a largely unified European Union, this will provide a better, fairer, more comprehensive system of repression. Hmm. I thought, Christ, repression? And I found about six more comments that were identical. Hmm. And I thought, this must be a translation error. I went to the French, the Dutch, and the German. And that's exactly what it said, repression. Now, I don't believe my law and my politicians are there to repress me. Hmm. My law and my politicians are there to liberate me. Hmm. Hmm. And is it any wonder Hmm. that the European Union is in dire trouble? And increasingly, senior politicians within the European Union Hmm. are openly voicing the fact they do not expect it to last for another 20 years. Yes, I, I think we, we can save this for another time, but I think the only, the, the only remaining big question for the EU now is that do we, do we dismantle this thing sensibly, brick by brick, or is it going to be done in a very nasty way? But one it, way will or... be, it will be wars of disassociation. Yeah, they but... won't be major wars, but they will be endless skirmishes. Yes, but I think the more sensible approach to take would be for the European Union itself to acknowledge. Look, look, we're talking. They're never about... going to. Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Yes, but you look at you look at opinion polls across the European Union at the moment, and you can see that this Brexit party phenomenon is by no means confined to Britain. You look at some opinion polls now, and it's saying that when we vote from next this coming Thursday to next Sunday, whichever day your various yeah. countries vote on one third of the seats in the European Parliament could be taken by Eurosceptic parties. Yep. It's ended. It's over. Mm. It's dead. It's going to take a few years to bury. Yeah. And the sooner we can disassociate ourselves from it totally, Mm. the safer we will be and we will be able to start rebuilding our agreements globally Mm. more rapidly. Yes, but I, I do think the European Union does now need to ask itself, are we going to dismantle this sensibly or is it going to be done in a chaotic way? And I would urge them to reflect on that. Um, but to, to go back to what you were saying a moment ago, I think um, the Human Rights Act, when it was imposed, in, well, it was incorporated into the, the British legal system, the European Convention of Human Rights, which is what was, you know, that that, that was what was put into the, the, the British legal system in October 2000. It, it was signed by Churchill at St. James's Park in Newcastle in, what was it, the late 1940s or early 50s, whenever it was. Yeah. Its purpose was to try and stop the horrors of the Holocaust and Nazi Germany happening again. But it wasn't, as I say, it wasn't imposed on the, the, the legal system in Britain until October 2000. And that was a fundamental change after centuries of common law and the example you gave, you you can do what you like unless the law tells you you can't to a system of here is the law telling you what you can do. And that is a fundamental change between citizen and state. It's a change in the relationship. So I'll park that to one side there. Going back to what you were saying a moment ago about the mainstream media, BBC News has seen a 56% drop in viewers 
since 2014 and a 19% drop in the last year alone. They are staggering figures. Is that a 70% drop in all? Um, or no, no, no. It was, was the 19 part of the 56? 19 is part of the 56. Right. But even so. You surprised me. <laughs> I he... think it's, it's lost more. I haven't watched BBC for years. But, but what's, what's happened there? There's always been a problem with institutional bias inside the BBC. Uh, Christopher Booker was writing about it decades ago, talking about his own experiences working there in the 1960s. But I think in the last few years, the tone of the reporting on BBC News, it, they, and particularly the way question time is chaired on Thursday evenings now, and the composition of question time panels, they barely hide their contempt for people who live outside the bubble and their views. I think it was George Galloway again who said um, this week that he um, wouldn't bother watching or trying to be on Question Time because he found the audience were better known than the panellists. George is going to go further than that. George has said he's going to try and create his own version of it. Hmm. And he may well succeed, you know. Um, As long as he can keep his opinion out of the middle of it. I think he can, you know. Uh, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but if you... I I incline to agree with you. Yeah, because I watch his chat show on RT, which is on once a week, and he does interview people from opposite perspectives to himself. He's had Jacob Rees-Mogg on there and many other people, and he does so fairly. Um, Hmm. And he also, similarly, particularly during the Purda periods leading up to elections... On his radio show on talk radio, he interviews yeah. his opponents fairly. So I do have some faith in him, but at least with George, you do know where he's coming from. Um, whereas with the BBC, they pretend to be impartial, but they barely hide their contempt. I think the big problem is that there are the BBC, whether you like it or like to admit it or not, is a government body. Mm. Um, I think you can liken it to a major. Um, county council Mm. Um, it's fundamentally like the major county councils corrupt Mm. and what it does is you rise to a certain level and then you cut a deal with your mates and you leave the corporation you set up your own production company Mm. and you move from having a salary of 120,000 a year Um, to a salary of seven million a year. Mm. Mm. Um, The BBC, um, and to some extent even the health service, Mm. would do well if it was only allowed to employ employees. Um, External consultants not permitted. Um, I'd like to see our government do the same thing. I elect and pay for an MP and his immediate staff. Since when did we have to pay for a whole load of consultants to do his job? Mm. Mm. You know, this isn't a parliament. Mm. This is just a total scam. Well, I've worked on the inside, as you know, and the observation I would make, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but this is a point worth making, 
it was around about, I think, the late 80s, early 90s that it was written into the BBC's charter, maybe not quite its charter, but certainly its guidelines, that I think it was 20-25% of all programming had to be made by independent production companies. And the thinking there was that it would give the private sector a boost and encourage private sector um, private sector indies to um, commission get, get their programmes commissioned by the BBC. That kind of worked for a period in the same way it kind of worked for Channel 4 all along, because Channel 4 never has made its own programmes. It's always been made by, they've always been made by independent production companies. Where it started to go wrong is that most of the commissions nowadays to independent production companies are huge multinationals. They're yeah. not Joe Blogg setting up an independent production company, Mr. Former TV producer sets up a company and gets stuff commissioned. These are huge multinationals like IMG or, for example, Mentorn that makes Question Time is part of Tinopolis, which is actually Welsh-based. But Tinopolis owns Mentorn, Sunset and Vine. I could go on. So this isn't really helping the small producer or the small businessman. Um, and the other thinking behind it was that if it's made by independent production companies, they will be more frugal with the budgets and employ fewer staff. Um, whether that has quite worked like that, I don't know. But it, as a model, well, the other thing is the BBC's business model is now being squeezed on two levels. Um, as you are no doubt aware, a man of, I'm not going to reveal your age because I can't remember it for a start, but those 73. over 70. Sorry? <laughs> 73. Right. Well, you'll know then that you're counting the days now. Geriatric. <laughs> yeah, you're counting the days till you're 75 when you can get your free TV license. All it takes is one person living in your household to be over 75. You, don't, you do not need to pay for your TV license any longer. So at the one end, the BBC model is being squeezed by that. And at the other end, it's being squeezed by those who are in their late teens and early 20s leaving home for the first time, consuming their entertainment through things like Netflix and Amazon Prime, for which you do not need a TV license provided you do not have an aerial connected to your television and you agree not to watch the BBC iPlayer. Marcus, I think you're overlooking the main reason the BBC is being squeezed. Go on. It's producing garbage. That is largely true as well. That is largely its true. Its programmes are, in the main, drivel. Mm. And I'm sorry, not every single household has one homosexual, one lesbian... Mm. One black, mm. one white, and yet every every program the BBC makes mm. is virtue signalling, and it's nonsense. And the public know it's nonsense, mm. Mm. and the public are voting with their zappers. That's right. That's right. And it's also there's a lot of in news and current affairs and in the choices of people they're getting to present their radio shows. They don't do news. Yeah, let me make this point. They just got it. Yeah, this is, an, this is an important point. The people they've got working on those programmes and the people they've got presenting programmes on their mainstream radio stations and on their local radio stations, there is a huge amount of box ticking and quota filling and not getting people in the jobs... You know, if, if a woman or a black person or a Muslim or a disabled person happens to be the best person to host that radio show on that station, I'm all in favour of it. But for crying out loud, don't put them there as a token gesture. Because point one, 
the quality of the programme will not be as good as it otherwise would have been. And secondly, if you are part of that group, isn't it damn insulting to give people the jobs on that basis rather than because they're the best for the job? That's an insult. Can can I give you a better example without you treading on a landmine? Because whether you can call somebody coloured or black or of a different colour or what you're allowed to call them this week, Mm. you're probably wrong. Mm. Um, But Max Boyce, who's a a comedian who personally I have, I don't find particularly funny. Mm. Um, He's much too dependent on um, vulgarity, uh, etc. But he did come out with one very nice joke that probably sums it all up. on the Thleen Peninsula in North West Wales, um, on the harbour, a girl was blown off of the harbour wall pushing a pushchair with an infant in it. Mm. And somebody ran over to the lifeguard and said, quick, she's fallen in the water. You'll have to go in and get her. He said, oh, I don't do that. And they said, but you're the lifeguard. He said, yeah, but I can't swim. Why are you the lifeguard? I can speak Welsh. <laughs> Welcome and, to Wales, folks. Yeah, but this is this is <laughs> the BBC is doing exactly the same thing with its virtue signalling mm. and putting the right virtue into the job. Whether that happens to be um, a homosexual, a transsexual. Um, a black, uh, a coloured, um, they are pleasing the system. Yeah. Just as uh, the lifeguard who is appointed because he can speak Welsh. Yeah, but there's no difference. The, the, the problem you've got with the BBC now, and this is particularly true of their national radio networks, I think, is you have got people hosting prominent shows who are just not up to the job, and they are there because of a, bo- a box ticking exercise. Yeah. And we're seeing this across the board. But again, How about a, start with the 10 o'clock news? Start wherever you like. There's plenty of examples <laughs> of, of it across the board, believe me. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go back now to what I really want to focus on, is what is likely to happen this coming Thursday. And we, we, we touched on um, Mr Farage a moment ago. Something Matthew Goodwin, the academic, put on um, social media earlier today. Very interesting thoughts, these. And I'm just going to... It won't take me very long to go through this. And this is what Matthew Goodwin has said. What I learned watching the Brexit Party campaigning in Essex today, a few thoughts. The Brexit Party is clearly focused on a max turnout strategy, targeting former UKIP and Leave vote strongholds like Essex, It is consistent with Farage's past emphasis on appealing to his core vote. But it looks different to what I saw with UKIP in 2013 to 2015. One Brexit Party activist said he thinks the toxicity that followed UKIP has been lifted. It's too early to know, but Farage certainly gets much less hostility than he did when I watched him walking these towns in 2013 to 2015. I was struck by how few journalists, commentators and analysts are actually following the Brexit party on the ground. I saw a handful maximum. Seems odd, seems its significance, and that while we are only one week away from the European parliamentary elections. 
Farage and his team have definitely got complete control over the party. This is a key difference, I think, from the 2013 to 15 when UKIP's messy internal structures and amateurism held it back. Farage is much stronger internally than pre-EU referendum. Another big difference is digital. The Brexit party operation is a world away from UKIP. The videos and the content are very regular and in the hands of a very young tech-savvy team. I think this could be important going forwards. The main parties are going to have to find a way of navigating this. The messaging is also different. Farage is barely mentioning the EU and immigration now. He doesn't have to. It's all about broken politics and Westminster. Re references to a democratic revolution are there a lot. And strangely, he says all of this in a more positive manner than the darker campaign of 2014-15. There is a lot of optimism about the direction of the Conservatives. The Farageists are confident they can handle Boris. Hancock or Rudd would be a dream. They believe they can have a much harder run at the Conservatives than they did in 2015. Much more interest in the Labour areas. Suspect expectation management could be an issue. The Brexit party is likely to win the European parliamentary elections in 2019 and then we go straight into the Peter Rabai election in early June. Ideal timing for them, but if they win in the former, namely the European parliamentary elections, and struggle to mount a big challenge in the latter, i.e. Peterborough, they might find the narrative changes. That said, I have watched and interviewed this world since 2012, 2012 and I have never seen the confidence and professionalism of today. First past the post remains their Mount Everest, but there is no doubt doubting Farage is up for it. He has the money, the members, uh, the less stigma, and is already looking past the European parliamentary elections of 2019. Your thoughts? Did I write that? <laughs> Matthew Goodwin. <laughs> Basically, I totally agree. Um, I don't have a lot of time for Nigel Farage as an individual. Mm. Um, he is, um, I suppose one would have called him... Um, in earlier days, a bounder and a scoundrel. Mm. Um, he's profligate with other people's money. Um, I suppose that's something he has in common with socialism. Um, he is no leader, mm. um, but uh, he never made the grade with UKIP. UKIP would not have existed hmm. without Nigel Farage. Yeah. And I always said, and it would cease to exist when he left, hmm. because he's not a leader, he is a dictator. And now that he is running um, the Brexit party, hmm. he is able to dictate what happens. Hmm. His he has finessed to the ultimate degree his two speeches mm. um but when you start when you look at politicians uh, of any party uh when they come on to interview to start with um they'll they flounder about a bit because they get asked questions mm. and they answer the questions 
increasingly as they gain competence, they get asked questions and apparently rephrase the question to give one of their answers. And when you're dealing with a politician like long in the tooth, like um, Kenneth Clark, for instance, hmm. they're almost impossible to interview hmm. because they can turn any question you ask into one of the hundred pre-prepared answers. Hmm. Now, Farage has been around long enough that he has got up to probably 30 pre-prepared answers. Hmm. And we don't hear him speak on much else. Hmm. Hmm. Now, in UKIP, he managed to lead it by cutting the throat of anyone who had any degree of competence, integrity, or ethics. Hmm. Because that way, he would never be challenged. Hmm. Net result, the moment he left, it was a long string of changing leaders some as often as 18 after 18 days mm. uh, Diana James um, being the example mm. uh, and they work their way through uh, the litter that was left in um, Nigel Farage's office trash can mm. uh, with Nuttall and with Roger and with Batten and the like. Hmm. There was absolutely nobody of any stature in the party. Hmm. They had all either had their throats cut or had walked away in disgust. Yes. And, and you left you left UKIP. I I never joined it. I, I left in late two thousand and six and yeah. as you know, I clashed with Farage personally. Yeah. Hmm. And um my story is quite well known hmm. um, or, or more to the point because Farage had a better publicity arm. His story about me is quite well known. Hmm. Most of it is obviously untrue, but it, it doesn't worry me. Hmm. Um, my friends know who I am um, and the rest of the world. I really don't care what they think. Yeah, sure. sure. Um, which gives me a tremendous amount of independence to actually tell the truth. Yeah, and I, I agree with everything you've just said about Nigel Farage and his personal qualities and his lack of personal morality. I'm also concerned about, and I was saying this in 2005, 2006, some of the company he was keeping, with the allies he was forming at EU level gave me cause for concern as well. Oh, yes. Um, something has changed, though, this time. I'll give you a few of my thoughts on where I think we're heading this coming Thursday and the results will come through next Sunday evening, won't they? Um the Brexit vote, those who support Brexit in the country, will be largely united around Nigel Farage's Brexit party and the system of proportional representation used at European parliamentary elections plays in their favour. It's much easier for them to get elected using proportional representation than first past the post, as Matthew Goodwin said in his um, thread earlier. Um, the first past the post used at Westminster, that is. And I was, I was saying many weeks ago that UKIP will not seriously split the anti-EU vote. And there's a reason I say this. 
UKIP is now, what's left of UKIP, is now occupying the space the British National Party occupied in the 1990s and 2000s. They have become a party of extremism. They flirt with the likes of Tommy Robinson. And under Gerard Batten's leadership, they've lost the credibility they had. And it is now becoming socially unacceptable to be seen to be supporting them. And the Brexit vote will therefore largely go to the Brexit party. And I'm expecting them to gain an enormous victory. Um, And if you look at what's happening in other countries in Europe, anti-EU parties, as I said a moment ago, could win as much as a third of the seats in the European Parliament if the polls are correct. And therefore, as we've already discussed, the EU project is in serious trouble. Now, that's on the Brexit side. The pro-EU vote will be much more thinly spread. It'll be fragmented. And there is no obvious one party for them to rally around. So it'll be split between the Conservatives, Labour, the Liberal Democrats, Change UK. There is a reason. Yeah, I'll carry on with this point and then I'll let you in. The Greens, the Scottish and the Welsh Nationalists. Um, But these... I think these European elections, these European parliamentary elections, are effectively the first chapter in what will become a radical realignment in British politics that will take around five to ten years to play out. And this is just the start of a long process, and it's absolutely fascinating. But I think on the Remain side, I think the Lib Dems will do best, but their vote on the Remain side will be badly fragmented. And for that reason, I think the Brexit party is in for a stunning victory. And come Thursday, I will be voting for the Brexit party, but I will be doing so whilst holding my nose. I'll go one stage further than that. Um, I would suggest everyone who believes in democracy, regardless of Brexit, everyone who believes in democracy should vote for the Bre- hold their nose and vote for the Brexit party hmm. in spite of Nigel Farage. When you say talk of socially acceptable, to, amongst people I knew, uh, it was quite embarrassing to have any association with UKIP. Hmm. And that's going back over 20 years, which is when I started hmm. being involved with UKIP. I hoped, I hugely hoped that, although I wasn't a member of UKIP, uh, I had pretty close contact with Nigel Farage, Hmm. that I would be in a position to take him from being a rabble-rouser to being a leader. Hmm. I failed. Hmm. Um, He became acrimonious. Um, His methods were underhand and dishonest and deceitful. Um, and amongst most of the people I mixed with, they were well aware of this. Hmm. And that is why UKIP never got anywhere in British politics. Hmm. It was a disaster in British politics Hmm. because it had no decent leader. It had Nigel Farage who came across as a yob. A suave job, but still a job. Yeah. Um, and he was surrounded by the dross of politics who were there purely and simply because they had been no challenge to him. Hmm. He didn't lead UKIP. He was UKIP. Hmm. 
Now he's in the position where he is the Brexit party. It's accepted that he's the Brexit party, but he's being managed. The first time that you could see him being intelligently managed ever in UKIP was when Pearson brought in James Pryor. Hmm. Now, James Pryor has a very checkered background. I, I know him quite well. Hmm. Um, he operates out of South Africa. He's a political, what can you call him, political fundy of some ability. Um, he also back manages uh, banks, uh, which not a lot of people are aware of. Mm. Um, he's part of that chain mm. uh, because, of course, banks doesn't have the money that... Um, Aaron, Aaron Banks we're talking about now. Yeah. yeah. Aaron Banks would um, doesn't have the money that uh, he is purported to have. Mm. Uh, he lives in... Um, the old farmhouse on a very big estate that is run commercially, mm. um, though he answers the front door on the estate building. Um, he, uh, I believe, is deeply involved uh, with clandestine money coming into uh, British politics. I believe, I believe um, that much of the dark money stories are uh, pretty accurate. I'm aware that Nigel Farage has benefited from this. Mm. Um, but then again, do we castigate the Russians for interfering with our politics and putting money into it? I don't think we've got any moral grounds to do so, since Remain are accepting huge tranches of money from George Soros. I knew that was what you were going to say, and you're absolutely right. And I would add to that another... Utterly sabotaging mm. any moral high ground we could possibly have taken on um, the stories. And I, I say stories. Mm. Now, I happen to believe them, uh, but I don't have the independent wealth to be able to prove my beliefs. And there's another point I would make that comes to this. The, the Conservative Party no longer has much in the way of grassroots. David Cameron became leader in 2005, saying he wanted to double the grassroots membership. In the years since, it has more than halved. And the reason it has more than halved, well, first of all, a lot of the old Blue Rinse Brigade, who'd been supporting them from Thatcher and Heath's time, have passed on and not been replaced by younger people. And the second is David Cameron did a number of things that annoyed a lot of the Middle England, maybe Blue Rinse Brigade, that had supported the party for decades. He did several things. One is he backtracked on his pledge to give a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. Second, his 2010 manifesto pledge on uh, an EU referendum at that stage was signed away in the, um, the, the agreement with the, the coalition agreement with the Liberal Democrats. Third was the gay marriage thing. Now, whether you agree with it or whether you don't, um, it was not a manifesto pledge. It's something they pushed through without it being in their manifesto, and that annoyed a lot of the grassroots. So the Conservative Party doesn't have that much of a grassroots left. The days of um, people meeting up in the local branch and going to the dance and so forth, they're largely over now. 
And therefore, who is funding a Conservative Party? And the, the reality is they are accepting significant donations from very wealthy individuals. And these very wealthy individuals want something in return. They're not doing it for the love of it. And this is bound to be influencing, influencing Conservative Party policy. And because of who these individuals are, they are by and large likely to be pro-EU. I agree. However, I don't think they've got any stability of income. Correct. I think they're walking a tightrope. Hmm. I think the Labour Party is walking a tightrope. Hmm. And I think that part of what is going to happen with this coming Thursday is that they're pretty much going to fall off the tightrope. Mm. Um, that said, were there a general election one month later, I think the Brexit party would be surprised at how much they had collapsed. Mm. They are not a party of British politics. Mm. They are a party of European politics. Okay, so that brings me on to the question, and this is something one of our listeners actually raised with me yesterday, and I know you'll be listening to this. Let's assume that we're correct and the Brexit party does very well in these European elections. It won't make one iota of difference to the composition of the House of Commons. So what will voting for the Brexit party actually achieve? Fear. Yes. The message will get through to the Westminster bubble. It is getting through belatedly now. Hmm. At the moment, the media is desperately, the good old legacy media is being yet again cranorectally retentive and it isn't coming outside the bubble. It's not giving the publicity that one would reasonably expect from the party that is going to get approaching 50% of the vote on Thursday. Right, now... In and the reason they're not doing that is because they know that their days are numbered. Right. In 2014, UKIP got 24 seats in the European Parliament. This time, if the polls are correct, we're looking at maybe 32 or 33, you think it's going to be higher still? Yeah. I think it's going to be just a tad under 40. And the reason being that people who are dedicated Labour, tribally, dedicated Tory amongst their own personality set will have the benefit of a secret ballot. And um, they'll probably deny they voted for Farage because at the end of the day, it's the very blue rinse that you're speaking of who will very much be voting for Brexit in spite of Farage. Mm. Mm. He is not seen as wildly different mm. to um, the position he's always held, mm. which is um, Jack the Lad. Mm. Um, he's not a man for detail. Mm. Uh He's not a man who can uh, grasp an overall picture of Europe, hmm. uh, but he is very good at picking off um, areas of it. Hmm. Uh, he's not a, a global leader. Hmm. Um, he's a global follower. Hmm. 
Um, he is to Donald Trump as David Steele was to David Owen. Mm. Um, he's the little man who runs around doing the warm-up act. Yes. And at the end of the day, Nigel's not much better than a warm-up act. Yeah, but he is a, a, a skilled media performer, but he yeah. does not have the skill set or the personal qualities to lead. And... He doesn't have the gravitas. Mm. Mm. But then again, not does Trump, and we're not in days of gravitas, mm. are we? No, we're not, but if you don't have that gravitas, you don't have good leadership. Um, mm. oh, so you've just about summed up every leader on in the Western world at the moment. Yes, there, there is a vacuum of solid leadership with the necessary skill set to do it well and this is i'm not going to go into this now but one of the things people are saying oh boris johnson i wrote a piece what five years ago now uh where i examined it in not that much depth actually but i i demonstrated how boris johnson does not have the skill set or the personal qualities to be prime minister he does not have those qualities and read, read max hastings indeed, on indeed. boris johnson and uh, max hastings employed him that's right. We'll read Max Hastings, and I have done. And there's a book by that lady, Sonia, Sonia something or other. Look it up. She's written in a, in a huge amount of depth based on her own experiences. Mm. Whatever qualities Boris Johnson has, and by the way, I think the joke around him is now starting to wear a little bit thin myself. Um, I, I, he does not have the qualities to be prime minister, and I'm not even sure he's that much of a Eurosceptic, actually, if you look at it. Um, no, he's another political prostitute. Well, yes, because he... Prior to the, the referendum of 2016, he wrote two articles for the Mail, and only one for Leave, one for Remain, and he only decided at the last possible moment which one was to be published and which one was to be spiked. And uh, he made a political calculation in his own interest of which side he was going to support based on that, it seemed to me. Um, that's how I interpreted it. But OK, let's go beyond next Sunday night when the results are known. We move on to the Peterborough by-election. UKIP did, of course, win a by-election. On one, well, we had we had Douglas Carswell um, when he he stood for the Clacton seat and won it. Mark Reckless defected from the Conservatives to UKIP um, and lost it. Yep, Peterborough is going to be a strange by-election. I don't think Douglas Carswell. Um, I don't think UKIP won that seat. Douglas Carswell did. Yes, because of his personal following in the Clacton area. Yeah. Um, but looking ahead to Peterborough, now we don't yet know who all the candidates are going to be. Um, first past the post, for reasons we've already touched on, is a totally different kettle of fish. Do you think it's a better form of democracy? Well, yes, um, that I agree with, um, because I, I believe that in, in a, an adversarial parliament, there's room for two points of view going toe to toe, as long as they really are two points of view and two very different visions of how the country should look. Uh, we don't have that at the moment. But... Proportional representation hmm. and multiple self-interest groups hmm. calling themselves political parties is a guaranteed recipe for the rule by the fool. The, the problem I have with proportional representation... Doesn't work. It, it, ...is that you end up with, with compromise being done. So you end up with a party, say, getting... 38% of the seats doing a deal with parties that got 4 or 5% of the seats and yet those parties that have got 4 or 5% of the seats get large chunks of their manifesto implemented 
and therefore you you have large chunks of a manifesto implemented that very few people have actually voted for uh, may i also point out that uh, nobody who gets into power on a first past the post basis hmm. ever wants to see proportional representation that's right which is why and they hold the power yeah and hmm. they hold it rightly because proportional representation ends up with coalition as you say hmm. now haven't we learnt our lesson from coalition yeah. it was catastrophic with that idiot from the tories and that idiot from the lib dims hmm. it was a catastrophe for both of them yes and the lib dems for years and years calling for proportional representation well they did only because they couldn't get in well, well yeah that's true and then they got into coalition government and they set themselves back by many, many years. Yeah, well, um, it's like Caroline Green hmm. party. Hmm. Um, what a farce. Caroline Lucas, they, yeah. Lucas, sorry. Caroline Lucas and the Green Party hmm. clamouring endlessly for, for um, proportional representation because they know they haven't a prayer with their pack of lies hmm. of getting elected by a sane majority. The only... Whereas if they take bigger seats, they will be able to get somebody elected. The only... Even though every, just about everything they say is founded on absolute garbage. Well, yes, it, it is. And I, I'm, I'm no fan of their agenda at all. But you look at... Well, it's the... not even true. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's based on the climate change cult, isn't it? it really? Yeah. Um, I also dislike some of the things they say about the armed forces as well, which give me very serious cause for concern. Yeah. Um, but you, you look at it, their following really is in a part of the country I know quite well. That's the area of Brighton around the lanes where there's, yeah. a, there's a certain demographic of person there. It's a nice place to visit, don't get me wrong, but there is a certain demographic of person living in that constituency. At an absolute push, they can win one of the seats in Norwich. And in an absolute push, they can win one of the seats in Bristol. There is no sign whatsoever of their appeal extending beyond that. I would agree with you. Mm. Mm. But um, they are only going to get cult for followers. Yeah. Mm. They are only going to get elected through proportional representation mm. where uh, there will be enough people who are outright stupid hmm. within that demographic hmm. to make up one of the seats yes. which is why in european elections they potentially do quite well yes yes um so we, we've covered the greens there then but looking ahead to peterborough do you think the brexit party momentum will continue um to that stage where they could potentially win that seat utterly depends on the candidate Mm. Uh, people will look at the candidate and say is this candidate of sufficient stature they will be heard in parliament yes yeah and i would submit they've got george galloway mm. they've got nigel farage i can't think of anyone else well george what george has actually said was is that he's, he's supporting the brexit party for the european elections and the european elections only he mm. has he has said that he wants to stand as a candidate in Peterborough. Uh, if George is listening to this, as he might well be, 
George, you haven't said whether you're standing for the Brexit party or as an independent, so forgive me on that point. You haven't clarified your position on that. But we're, again, they're the two people of calibre, Farage and Galloway. There is nowhere else to go, is there? No, I can't. You know, I, they're the only ones they're fielding and what little media they're getting. Mm, yeah. Uh, Tice has... has hasn't the personality mm. but he's quite handy to send around the country yeah. adding an element of respectability richard tice to we're about. yeah we're talking about richard tice the businessman yeah. uh he's unlikely to want it anyway i wouldn't have thought um but no. we should see on Look, that. nobody of any stature is going to want a job mm. in politics mm. yeah it is a place for dumping egotists mm. and people who don't want to be with their family yeah um, and I, I think back to something um, the former leader of Bridgen Council, Jeff Jones, said in a podcast interview last year. Jeff is a clever man. He's a friend of my uncle's. Um, they lived together at university in Swansea in the late 1960s. And uh, I don't share Jeff's politics, but I, I, I have a respect for him. And he is, he's a man of considerable intellect. And people have said to him, why didn't you ever stand for Westminster? Because you have the skill set to be a good MP. And he said two reasons. He said, I'm not gay and I'm not a womanizer. Well, interestingly, uh, you may recall Richard Boddy. Mm. Sir Richard Boddy, he was in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. Mm. And um, I used to chat to him, not infrequently. Mm. And I remember when he announced that he was not standing at the next election, mm. I phoned him up and said, God, George, you're going. You're going to miss politics. Um, are you sure you're doing the right thing? He said, "Miss politics." Mm. He said, "If somebody had told me when I first set out towards politics mm. that all I would ever be, which includes as a cabinet minister, was a superannuated councillor mm. and social worker, I'd never have taken the job." Mm. Yeah, because they don't have anywhere near as much power as they think they will have. And secondly, if you are family orientated, it's not a pleasant job to have. No, and, it's hideous. Yeah, and also you're surrounded by a lot of hideous people. Um, it's not easy to form meaningful friendships. And you've got to watch your back the whole time. It's not a nice working environment. No. And if you are a person of significant ability and the ability to make good money the chances are you'll choose an easier life and a life that pays more doing something else. Yeah. Um, the Tory party is made up in broad measure by um, businessmen who play mm. at politics, um, retired um, people who've retired from a career such as ex-army mm. and failed barristers. Yes. The Labour Party is made up of failed teachers mm. and failed um, union workers. Yeah, that's right. It, it does. There do seem to be a lot, particularly at Welsh Assembly level, who are cut from that cloth entirely. Oh, God, at Welsh Assembly level. Mm. Uh, and, you know, in these Mickey Mouse regional assemblies, mm. um, they're, they're just councillors who couldn't make the greatest councillors. Mm. Um, so they get shunted off um, because of the money. They're obscenely paid for the damage they do to their society. Mm. Um, 
you know, take the the regional assembly in Wales. It it's been going now for twenty years, and you cannot ident they cannot identify a single solitary, indisputable achievement. But I can identify the fact that they have knackered the health service, are doing immense damage to the education, are permanently squabbling, and are a bunch of absolute ingrates, most of them. Well, and if they don't like the politically incorrect language, perhaps they ought to change. Mm. Mm. Well, you, you know my views on devolution. I think it's been a disaster for Wales, and maybe we can explore that in more depth in a future podcast. But to yeah. round off where we, where we are here, um, a final point. I have already said once in this, that, in, this, in this podcast that I believe what we will witness on Thursday will be chapter one of something that will play out over five to ten years because, all yeah. right, let's take Nick Ferrari as an example, the LBC Breakfast presenter yeah. who, who does an excellent job on his show. But he said something a few weeks ago that concerned me, and he, he was a Leave supporter, but only just in the 2016 referendum. And he is one of the best journalists in Britain, in my view. And he said, OK, this has taken up too much time. Let's cancel Brexit. And I thought, hang on a minute here. The horse has bolted now. And what this, the events we've seen in Parliament, particularly in recent months, has shone a light on is that Parliament itself is not fit for purpose any longer. So it's not as if we can just pretend the last two and a bit years have not happened. They have happened. And we, 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 you couldn't really trust this group of people and this Parliament to run defence, foreign policy, education, health service, welfare, whatever, based on the sheer mess they've made in the last few years. And I also think the whipping system... Beware, beware, beware. Hmm. You and I have a tendency to be the small boy who shouts, the emperor's got no clothes on. Now, it's true the Emperor's got no clothes on. Everyone knows he's got no clothes on. But don't forget that the really salutary lesson of that particular story was that the crowd turned on the little boy for daring to say the Emperor's got no clothes on. We are in danger of destroying a system that works badly to replace it with a system that doesn't work even badly if we're still eating is quite good news so we have to be a little bit careful um though i for one at 73 would like everyone to know that the emperor's got no clothes on but how do you think things are going to pan out in the next five to ten years looking at the big picture as a final point Looking at the big picture, if Brexit does not occur, I believe it will happen faster. However, whether Brexit occurs or not, I think we are in danger of moving into almost global uh, dire straits. I think we are going to be finding ourselves in a position where um, eating will be competitive. Uh, where crime will be the only solution for some people to feed their families, uh, where um, the Western world fails. 
as a model. Mm. I don't think there is a good outcome potential. It's being shown to us. Uh, it's been manifest to us, should I say, rather than shown, that the situation at the moment is pretty damned horrific. And I think we have got to not look at Brexit in isolation. We've already discussed earlier on the situation in Greece and in Italy. But if you look across the world, beyond Europe, we are seeing the collapse of traditional political party structures and the types of leaders we have become used to. Ooh, let, us, let us go further than that. We have been told by the, the Remainers, it's a pack of lies, but we've been told uh, that the motor industry will pull out of Britain and uh, Rover Jaguar, Land Rover Jaguar um, have set, announced that they're cutting back by huge amounts and we're told by everyone except Rover Jaguar that this is because of Brexit. No, bunkum. It's nothing to do with Brexit. It's got to do with the fact that they, as management of a huge motoring organisation, motor manufacturer, absolutely and completely misread and miscalculated the market to a degree that's almost criminal. They backed the diesel engine when they already knew that the only way you could put diesel cars on the road was by fudging the emissions. Mm. As we knew Volkswagen did. Mm. But what we didn't know was they were all doing it. Mm. And the motor industry in its desperation to keep going after that, stopped selling cars and leased them. Mm. And there was a huge push. You know, you say you can have this car for £159 a month. Mm. You can have this car for no deposit and £210 a month. Mm. This is leasing. Mm. There is now such a surfeit because the leasing companies never hang on to a car much over 50,000 miles, hmm. there is now such a surfeit of good, fairly low mileage cars made to fairly high standards so they're going to last hmm. on the market. They can't sell new cars anywhere in the Western world. Hmm. Car companies are desperately trying to stay afloat. Hmm. They are producing more cars than the market wants or needs. Hmm. And then we hear, oh, but Sunderland. Yeah, what do you mean, oh, but Sunderland? Well, the Japanese will disinvest. What? What will they disinvest? Oh, the company that's owned by Renault that's in Sunderland. Hmm. And you look at things like, um, if you, you have know, a you Perso... Swindon, Swindon to that list as well. Yeah. Um, if you... Um, look at somebody who has a Peugeot agency. Um, so much for fair play. Hmm. Peugeot, because they're French. If you want a Peugeot agency, you have to buy French computers, hmm. French office furniture, French telephone system, and use a French company to supply your utilities. Hmm. Is this fair competition? Is it the hell? This hmm. is European 
rip-off enterprises, mm. which is almost full-time in Europe, isn't it? Mm. Mm. But yeah, we, and we... I, th I think people starting to realise these facts mm. are going to say, no, we're not going to buy your car mm. because you're doing this. Mm. And you look at, take British gas. How do they get away with calling it British Gas when it's a French company? Well, they're a company in significant decline at the moment, certainly. Yeah. Look at their I'm share I'm pleased price. to hear it. Hmm. Um, and this is the beginning of the wars of disassociation, hmm. where national blocks and corporate blocks will be scrabbling to hang on to their assets. Hmm. Now, we joined, joined within the European Union, with Airbus, didn't we? Yeah. And everybody in Britain thinks that this is as a result of Rolls-Royce and British Aerospace amalgamating, and we've, we have formed this company together with the Germans, the French, and the Spaniards. Hmm. Would you agree? Well, that's, that's the narrative, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. We haven't even got a directorship. Hmm. We don't own any of the shares. Hmm. Because of the way they set it up, we got out negotiated. Hmm. Because read this little bit of law. Now, you can't interpret European law. Hmm. You've got to do it by the letter of the law. Hmm. So it's just one big con job. It, it is. I understand where you're going with this. But we, we look, OK, we've used the example of Trump, um, who is... What, what Dick Morris used to call triangulation. He separated himself yeah. from both the Democrats and the Republican Party establishment. Now, I don't rate him and I don't like his style or his attitudes or his, a lot of his behaviour. But we, we look there. We look at what's just happened in Australia where um, <laughs> Scott Morrison has unexpectedly won the election there. Um, mm. We are seeing, I, I don't like Victor Orban in Hungary either, but we look at what's happening there. And we are seeing around the world, again in France, with the, with the, the Yellow Vest movement and the election of Macron, who turns out to be far more pro-establishment than he let on. But we are seeing the collapse of traditional party structures in Western democracies everywhere. And I bring you back to my caveat. The emperor has no clothes on. Mm. But should we be pointing it out to people because the alternative could be worse? And it, I have a feeling it's going to be. You may well be right. And the end game of this may well be that more and more power is consolidated with China. Oh, yes, indubitably. Mm. Mm. But I don't think British citizens will live very long on a handful of rice and working from dawn till dark. Where do you think Britain will be in 10 years' time? Struggling. Economically as well as socially? I think we'll be having trouble feeding ourselves. 10 years from now? Mm, 10 to 15 years from now. Brexit or no Brexit? Uh, it'll be worse if there's no Brexit. Some sobering words from Greg there. Don't forget to check out the rest of the podcasts on the Talk Podcasts website and iTunes feed, and we'll be back with another Brexit briefing in the not-too-distant future. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.